On this episode of the Swallow Your Pride podcast, we have Gavin Levy. He is back for his third appearance on the show. Uh, we had him on a few months ago where we did two parts. Uh, and he was just so enjoyable to talk to. We had a great conversation and he still had more to say and more questions to ask me. Uh, and people seem to love his episode. So we brought him back on. So uh, Gavin's worked in primarily skilled nursing settings. He's a fifth year SLP. He is more and more passionate each day about what he does. He believes he's in the early stages of his SLP journey and has a strong sense of determination and belief that many things are possible through hard work, continued growth of knowledge, and an inquisitive nature. So we took a little break because he was away in England for a few months, but he's back to record part three of this episode. So I hope you all enjoy the conversation between Gavin and I. Welcome to the Swallow Your Pride podcast. I'm your host, Teresa Richard. I'm a board-certified specialist in swallowing and swallowing disorders and founder of the MetaSLP Collective and MetaSLP Education. This podcast is dedicated to delivering the latest evidence-based practice to medical SLPs everywhere, while also recognizing that medical SLPs everywhere are doing the best with what they've got. Whether you are a new clinician seeking tangible tools for therapy or a seasoned vet stuck in a rut, my goal is simple, to help you advance your practice without feeling overwhelmed or underappreciated. This means that together we'll build confidence, broaden your knowledge, and reignite your passion for our field. So if you're listening, I encourage you to swallow your pride and be open to new ideas because at the end of the day, you and your patients deserve that kind of support. With that, let's dive in. Looking for fees or video stroboscopy equipment to level up your practice? Look no further. PatCom Medical is a medical equipment provider specializing in dysphagia, voice disorders, and reflux diagnostics. PatCom Medical was founded to provide clinicians and practitioners with the latest technology at competitive pricing, all while keeping the patient at the center of all they do. Schedule a virtual demo and let them help you find the perfect configuration for your practice. Email them at info at patcommedical.com to set up your initial call. That's info at P-A-T-C-O-M-M-E-D-I-C-A-L dot com. Just a quick disclaimer that all statements and opinions expressed in this episode do not reflect on the organizations associated with the speakers and are their own opinions solely. All right. Good morning, Gavin. Good morning. Welcome back. Thank you so much. Yeah. I'm excited to have Gavin back. He was on here a few months ago. Um, and it was actually a really, really fun podcast because it turned into an episode of him interviewing me essentially. And it was, it was fun. So, um, we just had a lot that we dove into and we had some really good feedback from that episode. And I knew that there was a lot more that we left on the table from our conversation because we just kept talking and talking. So I wanted to hop back on and sort of pick up where we left off. So, well, thank you so much for having me back again. Um, when I saw you last time, I was actually, well, I didn't tell you, but I was moving two days after that interview. So I went back to England for two months. And while I was there, I got a new job and I'm in South Florida now. So I'm oh, not right, in Central cool. Florida. And when I was picking the date to do this next interview, I said to myself, let me let me push it further out and see if anything comes up, anything new comes up. And it did. So we'll we'll get to talk a bit about that today. So I went into three new facilities, uh, one full time and two PRN, two skilled nursing and one acute care with a rehab hospital uh, for intensive therapy as well. 
So oh. that was giving me a new a new setting. So we had been talking about last time. Um, it was a based on an essay I had written called "Swallowing Instrumentals Through a Critical Thinking Prison," and we didn't we didn't finish all of that. So I was going to go on to some of that, but before I do, I'm going to sidestep a little bit, but I will I will tie it I will tie it all back in hopefully. So I'm going to call this little topic Itsy in name only. And what happened was I went into a few facilities or a couple of facilities where they were implementing Itsy, not all seven diets. I mean, what you'll see in some of the skilled nursings and in some of these acute care hospitals is they might put in four of the seven. So you might see puree, minced and moist, soft and bite size and regular. You're not going to see all of them in all, in all places. And I was very excited and I was like, wow, this is great. I'm going to see the ITSI diets implemented. And what I saw and what I'm seeing is that's not quite the case. And the problem that you have where we go in with the mechanical soft, you know, with the old systems that you would see in skilled nursing, we're actually seeing, I think, quite a lot of that in the in the ITSI implementation. Now, this is not in any way attacking ITSI. I think ITSI is wonderful. But when ITSI puts their diets out, I spoke to some of the people on the board at ITSI and have had some discussions, and they will send out the material. And they may talk to the kitchen and so forth on the phone, but they can't go to all the facilities and see how it's being implemented. They don't have the manpower. And what, what ITSI had said is they're, it's just growing and growing since the pandemic. A lot of places want to implement ITSI, which is terrific. So the problem is what I'm seeing is I'm seeing a soft and bite-sized diet with all these different textures on it, which don't go on the soft and bite-sized diet and so forth. Let me get your take on it first of all, and then I'll kind of dive in a bit deeper. Yeah, I, I think what's interesting is I've, you know, I've, I've been at a few different facilities. I've worked at a few different facilities since the implementation of ITSI. And I think it, it is still, it, it's tough because the the impetus behind ITSI was to make everything standardized, right. right? But the execution of that has just not been as it as it was intended, I think. And, and that sort of stinks, right? Like there is no, there's great resources out there. There's fantastic guides. There's you know, people do videos online. There's there's fantastic resources as to what this looks like in each facility. But the reality is, is that it's just not getting done in that way. And I, and I don't know what the answer is. You know, I know that ITSI wasn't cre- created to be a, you know, watchdog company or anything. They just created this framework and, you know, look to SLPs and RDs and, and dietary managers to roll it out. But um, yeah, it's it's hard when the implementation of it has not been as intended. And I think you're exactly right. It's it's to get the implementation. And I wanted to touch on that a bit, a little bit more. I'm such a big, big advocate for trying to get the consistencies, even if your building has a, a mechanical soft, which is really a made up term, right? Yeah. yeah. Us, as, us as SLPs still have to say, okay, what do we want that to look like? Yeah. Here's another thing I've I've discovered over the last few years is that who when you when you are trying to get a diet looked at let's say you want to implement a soft and bite size and you want it to look like a soft and bite size who is implementing currently 
the diets that we're seeing in hospitals, skilled nursing and so forth. I'm going to generalize and say it's the kitchen manager yeah. and it's dietitians and it's corporate dietitians. So there's a corporate dietitian. If you own 25 hospitals, it's typically a corporate dietitian who will come up and design the menu. They might look at Itzy and they or they might look at, you know, advanced diets or whatever you want to call them. And then they'll design the menu. And I've, butted myself in now quite a few times to be in the conversation at the very yeah, high yeah. levels of and, the and I think that's yeah I think that's the only way we're gonna affect change with this yeah you can't do it by going to the kitchen manager you have to go to the corporate corporate people which is hard to get in those conversations sometimes and get in those conversations so one thing I was going to say is that I think a speech therapist and I know not everybody's going to be comfortable doing it but we have to be in the conversation. I'm just amazed that they're designing these consistencies. I'm not talking about you've got to have this number of carrots and so forth. I'm talking about the consistencies. And we're not at the table. We're not in the conversation. Yeah, I think there was one facility I was at in particular that it seemed like the the dietary manager was very well-intentioned in, in how they Absolutely. sort of interpreted it, which I think... I think ITZY does a very good job of not leaving it up to interpretation. I think they do make it as as structured as, and standardized as possible. But for some reason, they just kept missing the mark. And, you know, the SLPs just kept, they were so frustrated. We just can't get these right consistencies. And I said, you know, why, do, why don't we just have a meeting with them? Why don't we sit down and all right. go through this, all discuss it? And they're like, well, it's not our job. It's a dietary's job. Well, it may not be our job, but... At some point, we do need to step in there if it's not as effective as it was supposed to be, you know, and I, and I want to encourage people to try to get a seat at this table if it's not if if it's not being rolled out the way that it should be, because it is impacting our patients and impacting our work. So it, it very much does fall in line with our scope of practice and our responsibilities in these facilities. Yeah. And I think what you just said about having it, is it our job? No, it's not our job to do the calories and so forth. But isn't it isn't it our job to make sure the consistencies are what they're supposed to be? So let me give yeah. you an example. I've looked at some companies, some corporate companies, menus that are based on itsy diets, right? So they took the itsy diets and said, here's our soft and bite size. And I went over recently with a dietitian, the soft and bite size. And I said, well, let's look at your verbiage. Your verbiage says bite size. I don't think anything that says soft, I don't see anything that says mashable. So we've got the bite size. Oh, we can take a hamburger and cut it into six. That's not soft and bite size. And it's not the dietitian's fault. They're doing the best they can. But like we said, if we're not there, they are going to have to step up and make the decisions that I think should be shared decisions with speech therapy for the consistencies. Yeah, I agree. So, so I know Itzy and Itzy, um, I spoke to Annie who works at Itzy and she's on the board and she was saying, I think she's on the board or discussion panels and she was saying they're aware and I, that other people have said it, but they're spreading so quickly that they cannot, you know, it's, it's great that it's spreading and now it's going to be how you then implement it, you know, over time. But I thought that was a really interesting discussion. And it was the first time I was aware in the last few months when I was seeing how these ITZY diets were being implemented. And I was going, oh, 
they're being Im- implemented the same way as <laughs> as the old diets were, yeah. where we've yeah. still got to figure out how to get the right consistencies out there. Yeah. Um, now on that, I'm going to add one more little thing. So, so I had raised the topic um, last week in one of the discussion groups on SIG13, and I had raised the topic of bread. Because as you know, many facilities put bread on altered diets, right? You will get soft bread on a mechanical soft or on a soft and bite size. I know it doesn't go there, but you'll get it there. And then they'll say, well, you have toast on a regular diet. And so I have spoken to quite a few, a hundred and whatever it may be, SLPs over the years. And I have asked this question to every SLP I meet. Where do you think bread goes, soft bread or toast? Where does it go on a on the diets? Where would you put that? What answer do you think I get? Not all the time, but what answer do you think I see quite a lot? I don't know. What Have you ever asked that question? Have you ever said like soft bread versus toast? Let's say you said, well, yeah. If you, yeah, where would you put soft bread versus toast? Have you ever raised that question? No, I haven't. Put it on your group. And um, I have heard quite often, well, toast goes on a regular diet. Soft bread can go on an altered diet because it's soft. Now, this is us. This is speech therapy. And I think there's lots of reasons for that. I used to think, oh, well, it, it may be it's therapists that have either less training or therapists who you know have been around for many many years that's not the case i've seen incredible therapists who who are very well versed who will say soft bread can go on an altered diet right maybe yeah yeah okay so i raised this question and i put it on the group and i got i think you know karen scheffler Mm -hmm. do you and laura brooks and so they're very involved in IDSI. And they put together with Katrina Steele and Julie Sichero, they put together the research of where IDSI put bread on the regular only, right, on seven yep. and not on any of the other diets. And they, they put in the research and the choke risks and so forth. So it's really interesting. And then and um, I spoke to Laura Brooks and she messaged me to Karen and Karen has now put together a blog on it today, I think, on or yesterday on the bread. And she's raising awareness on that topic again. And she's going to send it to you so we can add it to the to cool. the notes. Awesome. Awesome. But I think this is an interesting topic. So let's, if we can talk about it for a minute or two. So if you were to say to SLPs, where does steak, a hard piece of steak go? You would have your uniform what is the word? You would have agreement, right? Yeah. Everybody would say that's regular. Why do you think bread, we do not have an agree. I don't think there's an agreement on bread. I think you have very diverse opinions on bread within, within our own industry. What do you think? Like, why is there, if there's agreement, yeah. the, research, the research says bread goes where? on seven right yeah on regular you had yep. on um was it last week you had on i forgot his name but from simply thick oh i love yep i'm a big fan john yep. and so john yep. was talking about how you could alter the bread how you could change it yep 
And then the research says that bread goes on a regular diet due to choke risk and so forth. Yeah. But I don't think there's agreement in our field on where bread goes. 100%. I think, you know, I think Karen, Karen's done a fantastic job. I think and she's done other blog posts in the past about this too. I think she's one of the first people yeah. that spoke to me about this, about, I, I believe bread is the number one, like choking hazard. I, I believe bread it's is in there. And she, yeah. and she, yeah. um, and I think, did you, and I think she was saying to me the other day, she goes and she has to defend sometimes SLPs in court and she yeah. said that yeah like you said it comes up there and that she, the coroners because she has to meet with coroners sometimes it's up there i don't think it's number one but it's in the top three or four something in yeah there. so i remember i think she had said that to me if like maybe four or five years ago and i and that's always just stuck with me so that's something that i've always sort of before itsy was implemented sort of made an asterisk by like you know, in my professional opinion, do I think this patient can handle bread? You know, do I, do I think, you know, because of their aspiration risk or because of their swallowing functioning, is this something that they can handle? And, you know, I, I think we do need better guidelines and better guidance on that too. And I think you bring up even the better point about the bread versus toast because toast is bread, but it's now in an altered state. So, um, you know, I do think some more clarified guidelines around that would, would help everybody out because I do think it's patient specific, but that sort of what got us into this mess in the first place is, is, is being so patient specific when every facility is so different. Right. And I, th- I think you're right. You can be patient specific. Um, when I said to Karen and when I talked to the corporate dietitians and so forth, I said, we'll take bread off our altered diets and we will add it to patient by patient, even on an altered diet, if I think the patient's fine for bread, I'm going to put them, I'm going to let them have bread. I'm not saying they can't. Once I've done my due diligence. But I think it's so fascinating that as a as speech therapists, we if we're going to be able to go to other people and go to the buildings and go, then we have to have some sort of agreement. So I don't think you and me are going to come up with the answer here and now, but I do think it's such a fascinating topic to keep exploring. And maybe it's maybe it's also because think of how many buildings, not just skilled, people say skilled nursing, and I think it's, yes, but you can go to many hospitals where it's going to be the same, right? They're yeah. going to have grilled cheeses. They're going to have... And think of it, you've got a sandwich with lettuce, ham, cheese on an altered diet. Wow. Then that person should be able to swallow anything. Yeah. And then there's the people that make the argument about, you know, well, what about like a tuna fish sandwich, right? Like tuna fish almost even pureed on bread. You know, that should be, you know, I've heard some people say, well, that's essentially puree because it's the bread can be so soft and it's on tuna fish. And I just, you know, it's a slippery slope there, right? Like it's sure on on any given day the bread may be very soft but if it's you know three days stale then it's not soft it's really chewy so right so i think it and it's the pharyngeal isn't it of how it where where like we say the choke risk part i i just think it would be interesting to keep exploring this because i think i know we keep harping on the same point but we need to come up as an industry with agreement because we have agreement on quite a few areas, maybe like thick and liquids that obviously there's differentiating opinions to a degree there. Um, but I think it would be, it's such a fascinating area where I think we're still, you put a hundred speech therapists in the room, you may get a hundred viewpoints on bread. Yeah. Yep. All right. So we're not there yet on bread <laughs> to figure yep. that out. 
Now, yep. now I'm going to go back to something you and I spoke to, and I'm going to push on this a little bit more. All right. Um, <laughs> you know me by now. We had spoken about time constraints. Mm-hmm. And and I know that you had trained in fees. Did you start the modified? How long ago did you start doing the modified? So I know you're doing your doctoral and you're working in the hospital now. Yes, yes. Well, so I did modifieds, gosh, like years and years and years ago. Then okay. I stopped doing them because I was totally doing fees, but now I'm back doing them at the hospital again. All right. So I got to witness some. I'm not, you know, I don't do them, but I went, um, now that I'm in the hospital, I get to see some modified more so and then we have obviously we have the mobile we actually have a mobile uh mbs which i hadn't seen that before i've seen mobile yep. fees yep. right but i hadn't seen mobile modifieds so that's yep. kind of cool so i'm doing a comparison of the two and i said right i'm going to talk to Teresa about this again yeah and i started talking to all the slps and asking this question again i said how long because I was witnessing some really short MBSs. I was witnessing some that were like 30 seconds, 25 seconds. And I'm like, okay, let's push back on this again. When we spoke last time, you said, maybe in your hospital, you said like two to three minutes. Am I right on that? About. Yeah, of of fluoro time. I think that's what you want to clarify, right? Uh, Yes, of fluoro time. Right. So, So when I spoke to a number of people, they're saying... It's less for them, maybe 45 seconds to two minutes, yep. something in there. Some of them seem to be shorter than that. Yep. And so I said, well, why? Why are they this length? And it seems I think people do feel to a degree from radiology, hurry up. Yep, very, to very much degree. so. I can, yeah, I can definitely speak to that as I, I know there's a few different radiologists that we work with that some don't literally don't care. You know, they, they give full autonomy to the SLPs to, to do the study as long as you need, you know, the radiology tech may say, you know, Hey, we're approaching, you know, three, four minutes of fluoro time or something, you know, they, they, but it's not high pressure, right? It's not, Hey, shut the study off now. But then I do know that there's other radiologists that will say after even just maybe one episode of aspiration or just for some reason, even just one minute of fluoro time, Hey, that's enough. We got to hurry up, shut off the study. Um, so it definitely ranges. And I think, you know, as a field, we've done an amazing job in the last few years of really having these conversations with radiologists about, you know, hey, we need a little bit more time to do these. You know, this is, these are the risks involved. This is, you know, I think we've gotten to know a lot more about the actual radiation exposure that's involved in video fluoroscopy. So we are able to, to you know, let our patients be under fluoro a little bit longer than I think radiologists thought that we right. could in the beginning. So I think we are doing a really good job with that. It's just, it's, it's continued advocacy that we have right. to do to explain, you know, why we need a thorough study and, and why we need a little bit more leniency with, with the fluoro time constraints of being safe, but yeah. And like you said, I think when you talk about that fluoro time, it was really interesting to look at when they come in the mobile and they seem to have more time. Well, they don't have people there saying, come on, you need to, not that anyone's saying it exactly like that, but you know what I mean. Yeah. Um, and so, like we said, how is that then, if you're if you're pushing yourself to do, all right, well, I'm not going to do the multiple swallow. I'm not going to try them with a chin tuck or whatever then. 
right? You, maybe you want to do those things, but you don't because of time constraints. And we talked about that before. How is that then going to implement the validity of those results? I actually think, I don't know what you think about this. I actually think that maybe it's as much of an issue for when we say somebody's within functional limits as when we don't. Because if we did small trials, a limited amount of time, maybe we wanted to do more, maybe we've missed the boat a little bit on that within functional limit piece. What do you think? Well, and I think, and I think this is where the good argument for the MBS IMP comes in, right? You know, I think, okay. again, we're not using it as it was intended, right? The MBS IMP says to follow this protocol to give, you know, three trials of each, each specific consistency. And I, you know, somewhere along the way, people just use bits and pieces of that or, you know, only trial these consistencies or only do one, you know, I think my biggest pet peeve is when people only do one trial and move on to the next instead of actually really challenging and doing at least three. And I think there's even new research show, coming out that shows that four trials of each consistency gives us an even, yeah. of course, it gives us a better picture, but we're seeing much different results given four trials. So, um, you know, I think we do, really do our patients a huge disservice when we only do one trial of each consistency and say, oh, they're fine and move on to the next. And then they end up with health issues and we can't figure it out why. So, you know, I think we have these wonderful protocols in our field that are, you know, very research-based and research-backed that we're just not using them the way that they were intended. And I had a really interesting conversation with with a researcher about the MBSIMP because I had people saying, well, it takes too long. Our radiologists won't let us do the MBSIMP protocol the way that it right. was intended. It takes too long. It. And he was saying that the research that they showed mm. was that the MBSIMP does not take longer than if anyone just, you know, sort of did it willy-nilly or just according to their agenda, basically. So I don't have a specific paper or source to back that up, but I think that's that's interesting that, you know, there is sort of this belief that it takes longer, but it really truly doesn't. But if it takes even that much longer, but gives us so much more robust information, then why wouldn't we take advantage of that? Very good point. And, and I've, I'd heard something similar that you're, that when people have been implementing the MBS IMP, there has been pushback to a degree, but maybe, maybe, cause I think with Susan Langmore, they'll say, I'm sorry, not Susan Langmore. Um, who was it? Who's the lady from the MBS? IMP? Bonnie oh, Martin. Harris says, yep. Well, yeah, you don't have to do every single, I've heard it when she's been interviewed. So maybe there's a middle ground of how they can, you know, get it done. Like you said, in a timely fashion, if, they, if that's the case. A little bit more on that. So sometimes I hear people say, well, it's the older radiologists. And the pushback I've heard is, no, not necessarily. Sometimes it's brand new radiologists. I would be, I would be interested here. I'm giving you your podcast topic. Um, have you had a radiologist on yet? We have. Yeah, we've had oh, a, a few of them on. And, okay. and the one radiologist that we did have on, he said, you know, he had no experience with swallowing with video fluoroscopies, none whatsoever. So okay. he had no idea what to even expect, what to even do until the SLPs educated him on, you know, what what our expectations are, what we're looking for in the study. Um, mm-hmm. And so that was an interesting conversation because he just had his assumptions of what it was for. And when the SLPs educated them on, no, it gives us all this robust information. It gives us, you know, all the, all the physiology gives us all these answers to these, you know, aspiration questions. And, and he was just 
floored that they had had no education on that in radiology school and in residency. Um, so again, you know, I mean, it all comes down to how much we have to advocate for in our field. And I think, you know, one of the first questions I ask myself when people complain about the radiologists, I'm like, well, has anybody spoken to them? Has anybody really pled our case as to, you know, if we say, hey, can we have more time? And they say, no, it's like, okay, well, did we have a conversation as to why? You know, it's like, if you ask your mom, if you can go outside and play and they say, no, did you ask why? You know, well, there's a hurricane outside. Okay, well, then I won't go outside. You know, it's like, we need to have these conversations and get a little more information about why they're saying no, but why we need more leniency too, so. Yeah, I think that with that, with radiology, what what's also interesting within that, like you said, education, because it would be interesting to see where does radiology rate Amongst everything they do in a day, where would they rate the swallow study? Probably not very high, right? Yes. And and I know that that is a big issue too. And, and, And one of the radiologists that I spoke with did say that, you know, he just said, with all due respect, you know, we're being pulled from all these different departments in the hospital, which may be much more critically ill patients, you know, exams that need to be read right this moment, you know, and, and so yes, the swallow studies do get put lower on the totem pole. Are they unimportant? Absolutely not. But, you know, I think, I think, you know, like I said, communication is key and just having these open dialogues of, you know, why are we getting the pushback and, and what can we do to find a common ground? And and I know that they may not be your favorite, but it is our job. And usually SLPs that do video for us, please love to do them. So um, I think it just needs to be education more, you know, on both sides. Is is there another piece within that conversation? And this isn't any way saying anything about radiologists, but is there in any way a piece in that conversation that says, well, you don't have to have a radiologist. You could have a radiology tech, or I think, because when the mo- mobile comes, I think they can do a, have a registered nurse and then yeah, maybe so it's reviewed by the radiologist. Yeah, I know that's state specific. I know different states require Okay. Some states do actually require radiologists, some require a rad tech. So so that really just depends on your state. But but still worth looking into because I it's think what's interesting. Yeah, is, is the radiology techs may be sort of speaking the same language as the radiologist, you know. So the rad techs might say, hey, you know, we've got to slow down the study. We've got to, you know, cut it off here too. And it's just because they they speak that same language. So again, it just all comes down to communication and for advocating for why we need the things that we do. And I, and I know that, you know, Bonnie Martin-Harris has done a great job of really advocating outside of, of our field. I know she's gone to some really interesting um, conferences in, in other areas, too, to sort of get this word out about why these studies are important and what information it can give us and why we need the autonomy and a little more freedom to to do the things that we do. Wonderful. Well, thank yeah. you. And I, yeah, I think it's a fascinating, fascinating conversation to have. We... Let's touch base on this briefly. So when there's an instrumental, who do you think, who should be present? Who should be present during the instrumental? So let's say this is fees for the moment. You're doing a fees. Who should be present? It's a great question. I actually just wrote a very long (laughs) paper. I'm doing a qualitative study for my PhD on this, on on fees and sort of who's in the room and, and the conversations that take place. But for me personally, I think obviously the patient, the SLP performing the fees, mm. the SLP that's treating the patient. Well, that would be great. And yeah. And then a caregiver. So whether it's a family member or whether it's a family friend, somebody that knows this patient's baseline mm. outside of a medical facility and also can speak to sort of their cultural 
Absolutely. you know, their, their cultural norms, because I think that's a huge thing too, is, and something that, you know, I've experienced with my family, with my son is that we sort of put these restrictions on these patients with, with meal times and their meal, meal times may be very sacred to them. And it may be something that is not okay and greatly impacts their quality of life way more than we could have imagined. But if we had had this conversation sort of during the swallow study, we could say, okay, well, maybe we can try this strategy instead, or maybe we can alter this instead. If A isn't going to work, let's attempt B. And I think we do a big disservice when, you know, we just have the SLP doing the fees on the patient and we just make very sort of one way recommendations instead of having a lot of people at the table that know the patient and knows what's important to them so that we can really make a team-based, we can make some really team-based recommendations that are going to be best for the patient in the long run and really help their quality of life as opposed to just, these are the recommendations, too bad, tough nuggies, deal with it. I think you made some really good points. If you have, look, it's not going to always be possible to have a family member there, Right, right. right? Or even a caregiver sometimes. But if you can what a difference it could make, right? Yeah. Uh, we're going to do one in the next day or two. And this uh, patient, no English, Arabic speaking, and I'm absolutely going to have the family member there. I'm going to arrange it around that because it's going to make a difference, yeah, right? In how they 100%. present. Yeah. And so, and also, like you said, it's going to really help the treating SLP who doesn't know the patient maybe, right? They're coming in from another building, in this case, to do a mobile, it's going to help, right, in that case. Um, so I think it's a really interesting topic. I've raised this up before on the question boards, and some people, yeah, you get some great responses where people are trying to include the families. I know it's not always possible, but I think it really, it's a great conversation to have, and if we can do it, I'm yep. excited yep. to see I always, yeah, when I was doing mobile fees, I always tried to make it, a, I, I always would encourage the SLP. <laughs> Hey, can you call the family, see if we can do it at a time when they're present too? Just because even, you know, the treating SLP, they sort of know the patient in that realm, right? They know the patient in the facility. They know maybe what strategies they've tried. They know sort of some likes and dislikes, but the family member can just provide sort of a really, really high, um, you know, zoomed out lens of of what the patient looks like. And, and again, like the cultural norms, I just think are so important that I I don't think we do a good enough job of honoring those and and really taking those to heart and really thinking of those and considering those when we make our recommendations. You, um, I wanted to say um, one other thing, which is thank you, because I remember when I was with you last time and we did the interview, some of my friends go, they said, Gavin, you were just throwing one question and the next question and the next question. <laughs> I said, yeah, because I wanted to get all these things out. Yeah. But I did, but I did want to say that when I raise these questions and these points, and one, I'm not always expecting, come on, give me the answer. I'm not always expecting that. And I'm not always looking for that. I've always enjoyed raising the topics. Mm-hmm. I often raise topics without giving answers. I don't have the answers quite often, but I'm also not expecting, okay, Teresa, come on, got your moment. You didn't have the right answer. But it's just really like with the bread, like with um, the ITSI challenges. It's just let's just to raise the topic and see where we go, you know, as opposed to no, we always have to come up with the answer right now, which I don't yeah. think we can. Yeah, no, you know, you've I, done a pretty good job. Oh, well, thank you. I 100% do not know the answer to all of these. I just, I I think we sometimes get so far in the weeds and I know I'm so guilty of that too. We get so far in the weeds of 
what does the research tell us? What does the data tell us? And it's like, I've had so many just life experiences with my son and, and navigating other situations of, of dealing with therapists. And it's like, let's take a step back and sort right. of really talk about the implications on this patient's quality of life and what can we do to work with them? You know, it's not us just giving recommendations. It's us working with the patient and with the family. And, and I think, you know, one thing that I've always said is like, you don't have a dissatisfied patient when you include them in their, their plan of care, right? We get dis- dissatisfied patients. We get disgruntled right. patients when we do things to them, when we say, oh, hey, we're putting you on, you know, right. honey thick liquids or something like that, you know, without having them involved in the conversation, without explaining why, without showing them the results of the swallow study, without having this right. very big open conversation about, you know, these are the risks, these are the benefits, these are the repercussions. Are you okay with this? Are you not okay with this? And and I think we've done a great job. We've made so many strides in the last few years of, of finally being okay with having these conversations and really honing in on our counseling skills. But I still think we have a lot, a, a really long way to go. So well, I think I'm never think satisfied. And that topic is, that's kind of a, I won't call it a hornet's nest, but it is quite an interesting topic in that, let's say a family or a patient says, I read your recommendations and I want to completely ignore them. There are hospitals that say, fair go, you can have whatever you want. There are ones that say, okay, sign, sign our disclaimer yeah. form that does not stand up in court. Yeah. And there are, and then I've been in places where they say, no, you're the speech therapist. And I say, Look, I am not the diet police. If they don't want to do it, they don't have to do it. But then the hospital will still say no. Yeah. Now, I, that's a whole different avenue, right, where patient rights, because that's one of our thing, right? The patients can choose to say yes or no. Um, but the hospital might say, well, we're going off the swallow exam and we're not. Yeah. So that's a whole different conversation. right? Well, well and again, I think I, I think we don't play SLP versus therapist. I think we or SLP versus hospital. I think we do SLP goes to family and patient has conversation first, then as a group decides what the answer is to go back to the hospital. Because I think, you know, sometimes we just say, well, we have to put the patient on this diet. Well, no, we can't do that. And, and instead the patient's family may be fine with it if it's explained in the way that it's intended. Right. And so I, I think Again, I'm always going back to communication with all this just because I've seen so many really tough situations be resolved very easily just by having these open dialogues. And and sometimes you could go back and forth with it. You know, I used to go back and forth with the administrator of our skilled nursing facility constantly. And finally, I just I was so sick of fighting that battle and that I just started going right to the patient and the family and just said, hey, this is what we found. What do you think? And just by having that dialogue with them, they're like, oh my gosh, thank you so much. Like I had no idea or, you know, yes, of course, let's do that. Or, or they might say, no, I don't want to. And they will take it up with the facility themselves. So I think, you know, are there situations where we do need to insert ourselves? Yes. Are there situations where we don't? I I don't know that that's our role to insert ourselves in every one of those conversations. But I think, you know, as far as battling the facility, I think we talk with the family, we get their point of view, and we make our recommendations. This is what the family recommends. This is what the family wants. And then go from there. Well, within within that conversation, you could do an hour podcast on the word safe. 
I've, he- yes. I've heard people talk <laughs> yes. about the word save. Yes. And and I use it. I know that I yes. use it at times. I know that other people say I will never use it, right? Yep. And yet and yet if you look at that Asha Noms, the word save comes up a thousand yep. times. There it is. Right, right, right. Um right. so it's right there. But the reason I say that is because it's really interesting that if you ever go like to director of nursing and so forth, they're going to say, well, are they safe? Because it's the language of nursing, right? It is. It won the family too. You know, the family will say that, well, what's going to, well, how are they going to be safe? Or, you know, what's going to be easy? And and I think it's, it's, it is a matter of semantics, but I think it's naive of us to try to avoid that word, you know, when that's the word that the general population speaks to, it's naive of us and silly of us to, to try to discount that. Well, I was having a conversation with a family member recently on the topic of hospice care, and they were asking me that. They said, well, is the patient safe or blah, blah, blah. I said, well, let me ask you a question. If it's end of life, is that the most important thing to you? Or is it having the patient eat what they want and drink that they want at that point? So that's a whole different conversation, isn't it? Yep, yep, absolutely. So now... Um, I'm go- now I'm actually going back to what I'm supposed to be talking about, but uh, which was <laughs> so back from where we were last time. I'll do a little bit on this. I had a topic which I called location, location, location. And I said, what role does environment play um, in the patient's life in regards to the swallowing and testing outcomes? So let's say they have a test and you say, well, I think they would be minced and moist and mildly thick nectar thick liquids and that's because you know they're at the skilled nursing facility then you find out that the family member who you meet says well actually they're going to be coming home soon and you know the family member is very involved and (coughs) maybe they were borderline maybe you had them where you thought you know what they could probably do thin liquids but if they're in the skilled nursing this could that change your recommendation their location and who's there to support them yeah I, I think it absolutely does I think you know and this is one thing that I think Itsy's done a phenomenal job of giving very their, their resources are phenomenal you know they're very specific and direct and so I've had some family members that I've said you know hey this is what we're recommending in the facility but you're saying that their favorite foods are this this and this is there a way that you can modify them under this minced and moist category? And it gives it resources and instructions as to how to take our favorite foods and modify them appropriately. So, you know, I think it's a conversation you have with the family, like, is this something you can do every single meal? You know, it's not just something that you can only do Saturday or Sunday for, you know, big family feast. Is this something you, is there somebody right. at home that can help this person with every single meal? Um, so I think, you know, those are the conversations that, that we do have. And then, and then also there's a conversation that I know comes up all the time in skilled nursing about, you know, well, this patient could have thin liquids if they did a chin tuck, if they, you know, did a double swallow, we have all these compensatory strategies, but we don't know that they're going to do it. We don't have enough staff to watch them safely. So instead we're just going to put them on, you know, mildly thick liquids But then the stipulation might be, well, the family says, well, we watch them all the time. We monitor them. We'll make sure that they do the chin tuck, that they do the double swallow. If they do that, can we do the thin liquids? Um, So I think these are very, you know, open and honest conversations to have with the family about, you know, these are our recommendations because of this in the facility. And, And I used to be so scared to say those reasons, but I think 
people value transparency and, and especially families want to know, well, why are these restrictions on here? What can we do to get these restrictions off? Um, and, I, and I don't think it's a secret that, you know, skilled nursing that so many of these facilities are short staffed. And, and I think patients or families appreciate the honesty of saying, OK, well, you do have these restrictions on because you want to keep mom safe. And I respect that. Um, but if I'm taking mom home and I'm going to be with her for every single meal and I can watch her with these strategies, you know, then she will be okay with thin liquid. So yeah, again, I think it, I definitely agree. Location is very specific because it, it really depends on who's preparing the meals, who's helping the patient, who's monitoring the patient. I think, you know, there's a lot to be said about just delirium and, and cognitive status of being in some of these facilities. Whereas, you know, once they're in their home environment and it's a lot more familiar, right. they have a lot more clarity. Um, so 100%, I do believe location is, is, is important. And I think with what you said, I mean, it's almost like they have to have, I sometimes tell the families, you almost have to have a stronger swallow in the hospitals for the diet you're on, because I cannot guarantee positioning, pulling people up in the bed. If you're being assisted with feeding, my God, you better have a good swallow because... We're going to be shoveling food sometimes when someone's rushing, right? No, Gavin, no. <laughs> so let me let me give you an example of one thing I've done. I, when I've had in skilled nursing, now this would be different in a hospital setting. When I've had um, people come do the mobile and record or do the modifieds and recommend a Fraser free, I will say you may disagree. I will say, okay, don't put Fraser free. I can't implement the phrase. I can't. I cannot implement the phrase of free consistently in this setting, in these settings. Yeah. So let's yeah. do this. I said, you can put, let's put recommendation. If you are saying that you, you want them on a mildly thick liquid, let's put thin liquids with family only. And I can get the family to do the oral care and I can get the family to make sure they're positioned. And now we can kind of do a mini phrase of free where we know it's being implemented in the right way. So that would be my way around in a skilled nursing setting. 100%. And I was in a facility a few weeks ago that this conversation came up because they, again, were just very short-staffed and just could not get to the oral care required to do the Fraser. And the Fraser is very specific. If you pull the actual directions from the Fraser website, it, you know, it's very specific about the level of oral care needed before, you know, introducing the water. And if this level of oral care cannot be done, then this, this should not be implemented in this facility. So um, I think you're totally spot on. And, and I, yeah. <laughs> well, I think that goes on when you, even you mentioned like um, the Fraser free, and then we can look at like ice, for example. So when I get, and I'll sometimes see recommendation of ice chips. I'm like, have you seen our ice chips? They're like blocks of ice. So whereas yeah. in the hospitals, they may have those thin ice chips. We don't. Like skilled nursings often don't. So yeah. that's, you know, that's a, a, I love that idea, but now it's the implementation. Yeah. We, yeah, that's we a good talk- point. I don't know that there's anything, to my knowledge, if anybody knows, please let me know. I don't know of any research or anything about sort of ice size. Because <laughs> I think that is a very good point. I, I was giving somebody ice chips, I think maybe last weekend or the weekend before, and the ice chips were very big, you know, and I sort of just waited for them to melt down a little bit too. And, you know, we yeah. don't have any, any guidance to, to my knowledge on that. Well, and that would be an interesting one to research, wouldn't it? To see a yeah. bit more, especially on the sizes. Um, so let's touch base on something that you may have done but I would be interested to see more, which is medication pills under fluoroscopy 
under the swallow studies, right? Yep. I was talking to a nurse recently and I said, talking about medication, because we should, well, it has nothing to do with speech therapy. We decide if they crush or if they're whole and blah, blah, blah. I said, that's fine. I said, but it does involve swallowing. I said, yeah. so we may have some input, especially if patients are coming to us with an issue, we can help. You know, I kind of did a mini gentle education. She said, oh, yeah, well, that could be. Yeah. You know, I see, as you probably have seen, some nurses are very busy. So here you go. Take your 10 pills in one go. I couldn't do it. don't know if you could. Um, here's your water and here's your 27 pills to swallow. So I know that sometimes under um, under swallow studies, I've heard um, one pill, like a sugar pill. I've, I've heard of that. But I would be interested to see more research um, of swallowing pills because in these settings patients are often having to swallow multiple pills at one time and we do get issues and we do get reports and we do get problems what do you think yeah so I, I will say this is something that I was really surprised by when I started back working at the hospital again not not surprised I just I, I'm happy I'm super impressed with the hospital in that they put such an emphasis on can the patient take their pills and sometimes that is Sometimes the SLP is the decision maker between does this patient need a feeding tube right now or are they able to take their meds to buy us a few more days to decide. Um, and I didn't, I didn't, I knew our importance as SLPs, but in these real critical care settings, that is literally our entire role is can this patient swallow their pills enough, you know, to be able to buy them a few more days to improve, to hopefully, you know, avoid a feeding tube. Um, mm. we do use a, we use a barium tablet for our modifieds and it's big. I will say it's, it's oh, okay, like a calcium pill. Yeah. It's, it's like the iron pill I think of is, is like the really big yeah. pill it's equivalent size to that. Um, so that's brought up some really interesting studies mm. of, you know, whether it's stuck in the piriforms or whether it's stuck in the lower esophagus and doesn't ever clear there. Oh, so okay. some really interesting findings with doing that, that, I I was that opened my eyes a lot and something that I think we're remiss if we don't do that on video fluoroscopy. But um, yeah, it's it's huge. The nurses in, in this facility rely on the SLP so much for guidance on taking medication. And, you know, does this patient need a feeding tube right away? Or like I said, can it buy a few more days for this patient to hopefully improve and avoid that completely? Well, within the pills, um, I think as well. I don't know if I mentioned this to you last time, but when you look at the bioavailability, I don't know where I saw the research, but they said that if you use, I was talking to a nurse who was giving the patient the thickened liquids with the pill. And I said, I wouldn't do that because you're only going to get, as far as I know, about 20% if you use a thickened liquid. Did you know that? You're, you're going to lose almost 80% of the medication because yeah. it's going to stick and, you know, emulsify yeah. in there. And um, the best one to use where you get about 80% is applesauce. Pudding loses about half. Yep. So it's really interesting. And that's kind of helpful for nursing, I think, to, you know, get that piece. I think all that stuff is so fascinating. And I love that we're, you know, finally learning a lot more about that too. But yeah, I mean, it it just, it all comes down to communication again. And I think, you know, the SLP making the recommendations, but then going to pharmacy and saying, hey, you know, this is what we found. This is what can you do? You know, I know that the patient needs this medication, but I'm really not okay with this or, you know, what are your options? And and like I said, I'm just, I've been so impressed in the hospital that I work in now that 
the way that they do this team approach around meds and really just trying so hard to get the appropriate meds in the patients before they even consider feeding tubes, because we all know, you know, where that leads. Yes. Where that Um, I'm, we touched base on this last time. I'm just going to raise it very briefly and let you say something. And I, okay. this was intellectual aspiration, right? And we talked about this last time. Last time, why does the word aspiration sometimes have such such a high weight on our decision making, even if it's flash aspiration? Yeah, I, I think it's just what we didn't know. You know, I think we know so much more now. I think. We were originally taught this means this, right? Aspiration means pneumonia, means horrible right. health outcomes, maybe even death. But now we're learning all these, you know, brand new, not brand new things, but like, you know, Susan Butler's done some amazing work about just normal swallow or what, you know, normal, healthy normals um, and, and how they just aspirate regularly, things like that. So I love that we're learning a lot more about it. And, and again, I think it's just education and, and what we once thought in our field. And now it's not the big bad wolf that we have to, you know, avoid constantly. It's just something we have to manage and be aware of. And we know there's all other things that are, that are involved. There's overall health status, there's oral care and, and, you know, these wonderful researchers doing all this research about this topic too. And, and, and again, nothing in our field is black and white, right? We, nothing is if X, then Y it's complex patients with whole body systems that I'm so glad that we're really learning as medical speech pathologists, we're learning a lot more about those topics. So is it also about like taking into account, let's say, um, Ashcroft's three pillars, right? Yeah, absolutely. 100%. Yeah. And that's probably where it ties into what you were saying about if possible, I mean, I remember you, you, when you said having the SLP, the treating SLP and the, right, that's not, that might happen, but it's hard probably to get that to happen. But at least if there's somebody there, a family member, there, someone that can build that picture, then you might not be as afraid of flash aspiration. No, it's got to be looked at, but is it the, is it the be all and end all? Yeah. Last, last um, area, and this goes back to that report writing, where we talk about the profound meaning of interpretation, right? What you receive in the report. I think it was the week after I did my um, podcast with you, you had a lady on, I think, who's from your SLP collective. And I was like, oh, I love that. And she talked, do you remember? And she spoke about report writing. And she talked about that when she was in the hospital, she said, well, I think she has a group and they get together. Do you remember the one I'm talking about? She has a group and they get together and they kind of try to go over all their report writing and get a kind of a uniformed agreement. So it's people coming from different hospitals in her area and she's in the middle of nowhere somewhere, I think. So I thought it was fascinating. And she said, that when she started doing her report writing, she said, well, I didn't really put that much into it. But what got me was she said, because I knew that no one ever read them. Yep. Yes. Yes. And that's what got me. She wasn't saying they didn't read them because they weren't sent. She just thought no one ever reads them. So who kind of like who, who cares type of thing. I think this is one of those things like know your audience, right? I think in, in different facilities, like I think in different facilities, it really, it differs. In some facilities, they don't. They read the recommendations, file them away, and that's it. 
And in some facilities, it's 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 scrutinized. And I, I don't mean that in a negative connotation, but it's really, you know, trying to decipher every single word. What does this mean? What do you think this means? How do we interpret this? And I think it's really just know your audience. You know, what facility did this patient come from? What facility is this patient going to? Who who do we think is going to read this report? And and it, it, the argument can be said, do we change our report based on who we're speaking to? And I would make the argument, yes, because I think the recommendations and the interpretations very much matter. Um, if they have another treating SLP that's going to be receiving these results, they may not take our recommendations that seriously because they know the patient not seriously isn't the right word but they may take them into consideration right and then they make may make their own recommendations whereas if this patient is just going home and the family member is the only person reading these they're going to want very thorough understanding of what of what's going on and why um so i think i would make the argument that it it does matter but do you think that that it could be both ways in other words maybe these maybe the speech therapist does one i mean i would always want it as thorough as i can get i want to see as much as i possibly can to inform me of what was found objectively and not what i'm just putting in subjectively and then even if you said well they're going home well what if two weeks later they go back to a hospital no one does another objective and so that test is still the one that's going to be used for the next six months for whatever reason yeah I think this could be a whole nother podcast, Gavin, because I think there's so many what ifs in this situation, right? Like I think, you know, I've worked in facilities where they'll say, hey, please don't include this in the recommendations because then our staff is bound by this. Or please don't write this because state will come in and we'll read this and we'll get dinged if it's not carried out. So it's whether that's right or wrong. I'm just saying this is the reality of some of some facilities and the conversations that are going on. And I think it just all depends on, on know your audience and how can you write the most robust report that gives the patient and the SLP the most information that's the most useful and the most helpful. You know, we can describe the the pathophysiology till the cows come home, but does that mean anything to the family member or to the nursing right. staff that reading this in a facility that doesn't have an SLP. Um, so I, I just keep going back to know your audience and, and who you're writing your reports for, because I can assure you that they are being read by someone, but we don't know who that, what well, that's that what, background is. And that was the only little pushback I'd give is when you say know your audience, do we always know who the audience is? We don't. We don't. We right. don't. Right. Um, and hopefully we do get an audience, right? Like she was saying, it was written and nobody read it. So just to finish off, because you're going to ask me my final thoughts. So I'm going to give yep. you my final thoughts. Yep. Um, couple of things. I would say embrace the chaos. I yep. think in the settings I work in, mainly like skilled nursing, it is, I want to, maybe the word chaos isn't the right word, but it is almost a chaos at times. But if you embrace it, it's exciting, it can be wondrous, and you can learn a lot. I think you could be a 25-year therapist with 25 years of experience, and you could be but only one year of expertise, and you could be a 10-year therapist with 10 years of expertise. I don't think, I mean, look. At, if I look at you, you're an amazing example. You're running your business, you have your swallow your pride, and you've gone back to school to get your doctorate. That's pretty incredible. Not everybody's going to do that and doesn't have to be everybody's journey. But I think if we grow a little bit each month, each year, just continue to be curious, that's 
that's what really matters. It doesn't mean everyone's going to do it at the same pace. Yeah, I, I think what it is, yeah, 100%. I think the only thing that we have to embrace is change, right? And I think if you're going to work in the medical field, you have to be growth-minded. Um, there's a whole book about that, about being growth-minded, and I think it's it's such yeah. a crucial skill to have to work in the medical field. You cannot be stagnant. You cannot practice the way we did 10, 20 years ago. You don't have to go back and get your PhD. You, you don't have to do uh, all these other extracurricular things. You could just be the best SLP and just continuing to seek out, you know, more and more knowledge on, on different topic areas. And I think as long as you don't stay stagnant in your beliefs and you're open to change and you're open to new research, that's, you know, why we have researchers. That's their whole job is to find new research, find new outcomes, you know, include the latest technology with things. So things are going to always be changing and, and yeah, you have to be open to that. You have to embrace that. And, and one tiny thing, when you talk about research, I think podcasts like your podcast is one of the really nice ways of connecting the research to the therapists out in the field. Yeah. Sometimes you read something and go, I don't know how that applies. I don't know yeah, how that yeah. applies to the real world. But when you bring yeah. the researchers together in the podcast, now that can can help apply it to people working out in the yeah. field. Yeah. I wanted to... I wanted to No, I think what's interesting is a lot of the researchers that I've had on, you know, it's like it says something in their Mm. article, but they're like, but I just want to add in this caveat, or I just want to add in, you know, sort of from my viewpoint. And and that's what I always like hearing about on the podcast is, ooh, that didn't make the cut in the article, or, oh, that was, it was sort of intended in this light, not that light. And so that's why I like being able to, to dive into these. Yeah. And I think that's really important for us as an industry to connect the research to what we're doing because if we read the research and don't see how it connects or say well I don't have the time for any of that so that doesn't make any sense then we're not going to use it if if I know you usually ask for one person right you see how many times I listen to your podcast I kind of do my own questions you you asked for somebody who's influenced us I didn't put it as a research paper but I'm going to mention three people really briefly one is Mary Massery. Are you familiar with her? Who's mm-hmm. a physical therapist. And so she has an old article, I mean, she's still there, and she does manual breathing and coughing aids. So mm-hmm. I think I mentioned that in the notes. Um, and I'm really interested in cough reflex, in EMST, in anything on, okay, what if something's there? How do we get that out? We're seeing so many COPD, so many breathing issues in the hospitals that I think it's an area I know with Michelle Trochet and so forth. It's such a fascinating area. Another lady I will mention is Dr. Ulrika Frank. And I've read some of her articles, but there's a podcast interview. And I think I left a link um, that she does on coordination of respiration and swallowing. Another fascinating area, I think, connecting the breathing to the swallowing, which I sometimes think we don't talk about enough but we've got all these respiratory patients in the hospitals. And then the last one I'll mention um, is on a different topic is dementia and that's Tipa Snow. Mm -hmm. Um, So I just think, and she's an occupational therapist. So the reason I mentioned it is to say that for me, I absolutely love looking at speech therapists and what we're saying, but there are people in those other areas that have things that are very valuable for us yep. because we all work intertwined, really. Yep. All right. 
Well, my time is up for this episode, Gavin, but thank you so, so, so much for coming back thank on here. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate, I appreciate you. I love these conversations. I think they're <laughs> just so down to earth and, and real, right? Like we both come from clinical experience yeah. and, and it's things that we've, we've gone through and, and yeah. So thank you so much. I, I love these conversations with you. Well, thank you for having me. Appreciate it. Right. Bye. Talk to you soon. Okay. Bye. Okay. Bye. And that's a wrap for this episode. As always, thank you so much for listening. And if you'd like to download the show notes from this episode, please visit swallowyourpridepodcast.com. There you can also sign up for our email list so that you'll never miss another episode. If you do like what you hear, then please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or share it on social media with your friends and colleagues because that is what keeps these episodes coming. If you'd like to be a guest, share feedback, or request a topic to be discussed on the show, please email podcast at TeresaRichard.com. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll catch you next week.